Friends, my name's Brad. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho. And uh, over 3,000 years ago, King Solomon wrote Proverbs 27.6, which says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. And that verse reminds us of the fact that telling your friends something they really don't want to hear, like warning them about a bad relationship or pointing out maybe a character flaw in their lives or calling them out when they make a bad decision, that takes courage to do that. It's never easy, but if you are a genuine friend, you'll step into that places, those places because you're exercising care for them. And if we made this into a meme, it might say something like, true friends say good things behind your back and bad things or hard things to your face, meaning they're willing to speak truth to you. A New York Times opinion columnist Julie Slatterty once said, what a gift to have a friend who will risk telling you the truth to your face instead of chattering behind your back. You are doubly blessed if that friend weathers the storms of life with you, even if they are storms you may have foolishly created yourself. <laughs> well, we've come uh, to our study in the New Testament book of Galatians to the part where the author, Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has some hard things to say to his friends in the Galatian community who are living and worshiping and working together. And it's a community that Paul founded. Paul was one of the leaders of the early Christian movement in the first century, and Galatia is in modern-day Turkey. And so Paul founded that church. And now he's gone on to minister in different places and gone out from there, and he writes back to them. And he has some things he needs to call them out on, but he does so with a deep sense of compassion and love and care for them. We're in chapter 4, and when we come into chapter 4 in the book of Galatians, Pastor Wally began uh, that text for us last week, and Paul starts to change up his style a little bit. Over the last few chapters, he's been telling them what they should think and believe, how they need to be thinking clearly about the situation they find themselves in. And part of the situation is that they have false teachers who are coming and teaching them that in order to be part of this Christian community, they need to practice Old Testament realities. And Paul's been explaining to them that it's weak and useless to try and earn God's favor by keeping a certain set of rules. And now he shifts from telling them how they should think about this, and he begins to say, okay, here's what you need to do now, which is great because if you're like me, buried not too far beneath the surface, I'm a bit of a pragmatist. And that means I would like you, when I'm reading the Bible, I want to know, okay, if the Bible's in my authority for faith and practice, what do I need to do 
about what I'm hearing or paying attention to. And Paul doesn't shy away from that. He's going to give helpful instructions to his original listeners, to his friends that come across into our lives as well. And so if you have your Bibles or you can turn on your device or in the Jericho Ridge app, there's a Bible. uh, And we're going to look at Galatians chapter 4. And in this passage, we're going to see several characteristics of good friends. How do good friends speak to each other? will say hard things to each other's faces when it's needed. And so right away in Galatians 4, Pastor Wally taught to verse 11 last weekend, and we'll pick it up in verse 12. Right away in Galatians 4:12, Paul comes right out and just speaks truth to them. And he says, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to live as I do in freedom from these things. So these things are talking about, back to verse 10, you're trying to earn favor with God by observing certain days, months, seasons, years. I plead with you, live in freedom from these things, for I have become like you. Paul was a, himself grew up Jewish, and he's saying, I've become like a non-Jew, like a Gentile, free from those laws. So, This is actually the very first instruction we get in the whole book of Galatians. We've had to go through four chapters before Paul finally comes out and says, all right, I want you to do something. I want you to be like me, he says. And we might pause for a moment here and ask a bit of a nuanced question. And we might phrase it something like, "Mm, Paul, question, shouldn't we be calling people to imitate Christ and not imitate you, like as a human leader? Isn't, Paul, isn't that a little bit like arrogant? Maybe a little bit self-aggrandizing, like you think you're so awesome, everyone should follow you. And I think one of the challenges is that when we read this, most of us, if we have a modicum of humility, we're aware of our own inconsistencies and limitations and areas of weakness. And so very often, rightfully so, we're hesitant to set ourselves up as models for the Christian life for others to follow. It seems maybe presumptuous, or a tad risky even. So what should we do? So we, th- we say things in church land like, oh, don't, don't follow me, follow Jesus. But Paul says the, something quite different here to the Galatians. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he repeats it again. He says, imitate me, be a follower of me, just as I also imitate Christ. So why would Paul, or frankly anyone, make such a bold claim and say, you should pattern your life after my life? Well, I think one of the challenges of the Christian experiences is that it's hard and frankly, it's quite discouraging to follow someone who is perfect. 
And this is where I think Paul is trying to speak into this. So, um, even little bracelets, right? Remember those, there was a big fad for a while, WWJD bracelets, what would Jesus do? Even sometimes that can be a very disheartening conversation because we think, well, I'm not sure what Jesus would do right now, but I know Jesus was perfect, and so Jesus would make a perfect decision, and I don't know what to do, so I find it difficult and challenging to know, and I can't figure out what I should do, and so sometimes you become frustrated and discouraged. And Paul understood something, I think, about the Christian life that maybe in our desire to avoid hypocrisy, which is a good thing, we've stepped back from a little bit. And see, Paul understood that the Christian life is an embodied life. The spiritual life is lived out in community, and so we need other people in community that we can look to and pattern our lives after. And this is where Paul, I think, is going with this. Paul understands the wisdom of, we might use language of mentorship, people who are further along in one aspect of life or another. And you can watch them, and you can observe how they live their life, how they make decisions, what their spiritual rhythms are like, and you can then pattern your life after them. And in my own life, I can think of many people who have served incredibly well, some of them not even in a formal or structured way, but I've just watched their life in season and out of season and thought, I would like to be like that person. I want to have a relationship with God like that person does. And sometimes it's very practical. I can think of some friends of ours, uh, Phil and Noni, just wise people, and many times, uh, they, they were missionaries, they've raised uh, four kids into young adulthood, all of whom love the Lord, all of whom are on track with Jesus. And so many times, when I was a little bit lost or stuck in a parenting situation, I would say, hey, can we come over and just sit on your couch and can we just talk a little bit about where, how you guys think about life and parenting? And we've sought advice and wisdom from them many times. Some things we've patterned our lives in that area after them. Or other people that I can think of uh, whose prayer lives I admire. And I may not pray exactly like them. It's not that I'm patterning my words after them. They might use phrases that I might not use. But just the way that they approach prayer has deeply spoken to me. And I thought, I want to I learn more like that. Or people, uh, I think about people like uh, Al and Herta, who've taught me a lot about generous living and mentored and modeled, you know, how do you be wise with the resources that God has entrusted to you? And you probably have your own list of people if you start to think about it. And you may not have taken time to actually identify different areas or the people that have mentored you in those places but you'd also, if you thought a little more about it, recognize right away, those mentors are not perfect. They didn't get every single thing right, but they were further down the road than you were. And so you wanted to follow or pattern that part of your life after you. 
And I've found this also not just in relationships, but also uh, in books. It's one of the reasons why I love reading biographies. I've just finished up uh, reading a biography of the Wesleys, and I've found it's given me huge insight and challenged different areas in my own life that I look at. And so I would say that from a distance and from the grave, the biographers of the Wesleys are mentoring me and their life. I am choosing now to pattern some of my parts of my life after their experiences. And in his excellent commentary on Galatians, Walter Hansen says this, the imitation of Christ needs to be illustrated in the experience of our peers. Without mentors who show us what it means to follow Christ in the rough and tumble of our contemporary world, imitation of Christ sometimes seems like an otherworldly, unattainable ideal. But when someone like us gives us a living model to follow, then we have a tangible, realizable pattern to guide us. And so, one of the questions I think that right away comes to my mind when I think about what Paul says when he says, pattern your life after mine, is the question for each of us is, who are you imitating? Who are you patterning your life after? Are you a person who is taking the posture of a learner? If you're a person who has been following Jesus for a long time, then I would also say your role is to be a mentor, to be a guide to others. And it may not be in a formal or structured kind of way. It may just happen by the way that you live your life out in your small group. Or maybe you lean in and say, you know what, I'd like to contribute some of my life into the lives of our young people here. And you might become a youth sponsor. Or maybe you say, well, I, I want to come to pre-gathering prayer on Sundays. And I just want to model and be around others who pray in a non-stuffy way. Maybe it's highly informal. Maybe it's a particular area of your life and you say, I, I really need to grow in this area of my life. So maybe you call up another person at Jericho and you just say, hey, can I take you out for coffee and can I ask you about this area of your life? Maybe you're a mom and you say, you know, how do you handle discipline in your home? Or maybe you say, I just need to get a stronger handle on my financial world. You know, could you help me with that? See, we're all... Whether we know it or not, we're all imitating someone. We're all, our lives are following a pattern of some kind. And so it behooves us to be quite wise and choose a godly and good model that will lead you deeper into places of growth and development with Jesus. And this is what Paul is saying. He's like, gang, I'm not perfect, but I'm a little further down the road. And so I want you to just fall in line and let's take some steps on this journey together. Let's keep reading together about what he actually wants them to follow him into. Galatians chapter 4, verse 12, at the end, he's going back to his origin story with them when he first came and met them. And he says, you did not mistreat me when I first preached to you. Surely you remember that I was sick when I first brought you 
the good news. Now, we don't know what ailment Paul had. It comes up in a number of his letters that he writes, so clearly he had some kind of physical infirmity. Endless ink has been spilled over it. We just don't know. But when he came to Galatia, we do know that he came in a place of weakness. He was not well physically. And he says, even though my condition tempted you to reject me or you did not despise or turn me away. No, you took me in. You cared for me as though I were an angel from God or even Christ himself. Paul's not saying I was Christ. He's just saying, you know, you received me with that same warmth that you received the gospel. You received Christ. And then he says in verse 15, uh, where is that joyful and grateful spirit you felt then? I'm sure at that moment, you would have even taken out your own eyes metaphorically and given them to me if it had been possible. Have I now become your enemy because I'm telling you the truth? See, Paul had a very tender and highly relational beginning with this group. And he reminds them of these first encounters together. He goes back over the tender parts of their friendship. And when he does that, then he's able to step into that place of spiritual authority in their lives and give them some instruction. And I think this is the second component to good friendship that we can see modeled in this passage. And that is that good friendship practice, practices vulnerability. Good friends, good relationships are built on vulnerability. They are not just built on authority, stepping into somebody's life and telling them what's wrong. And they're not just built on relationships and a warm relationship. Sometimes there is authority that needs to come. And authors like Brene Brown, and uh, this particular graph is from uh, Andy Crouch, and they've written extensively about the dynamic that opens up when a healthy balance of authority and vulnerability come together in a person's life with the view to other people flourishing and growing. And this is what Paul's doing with the Galatians. He's saying to them, listen, you remember, when I came into your lives, I didn't come shouting and demanding. I came and I was not well. And we developed this sense of mutuality, a, a dependence on each other because you helped and served me in that place of weakness. But together then we developed a healthy sense of dependence on God. And this mirrors Paul's writings to the Corinthian church. Paul uh, says that God instructed Paul about his area of weakness, this physical infirmity. My grace is all that you need God said to Paul, because my power works best in weakness. So now, Paul said to the Corinthians, I am actually glad to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me. I take pleasure in my weakness, the insults, the hardships, the persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ because when I am weak, then he is strong. And this is Paul's point of sharing his story with the Galatians. It's not a pity party. 
He's not just trying to elicit sympathy from them. Oh, poor Paul. Oh, it was really rough. He's, he's making his point about the nature and character of God's work in our world. That God's strength works in a unique and mysterious way in places where we are willing to acknowledge weakness. Because when we are weak, then God is strong. And see, Jericho, this is a point for us to take seriously, especially at this moment in our history. Curtis laid it out well for us that we're taking a big hill presently financially, spiritually, emotionally. And in seasons like this, I think it can be an, an opportunity where the evil one kind of weasels his way in and we can tell ourselves things like, yeah, that's right. We're a little church, but we got big things going on. Oh, yeah. We're pretty, we're pretty good at this stuff, actually. You know, we, we got this. The little church who could. Yeah, that's us. We did this awesome thing. We bought this building. We're so strong. We raised over $1.4 million in 14 months. We're doing amazing renovation. Look at the stuff we are doing. We're doing this. We're doing that. We're so amazing. And Paul reminds us again and again, not only in his teaching, but also in his autobiographical moments and his reflections that he says, you know what? If you want to plant something in that kind of a soil, it's going to wither and die because it's planted in the soil of human initiative, and we'll get to that in a few moments. What you want to plant something in is the soil of humility, which is a soil of vulnerability and weakness. And in that soil, God does God's best work of growing things. James says, God actually opposes those who are proud, but God's grace flows towards those who are humble who acknowledge weakness and need. I love watching our elders get together. We gather uh, twice a month, and one time of the month is just exclusively dedicated to prayer. And when we come up against challenges and problems, the very first response is, let's hit our knees. Let's ask the Lord to demonstrate God's strength in these times. And so... For me, I find this incredibly challenging because we like to project an image of strength out in the world in our contemporary culture. But I would ask, and Paul's demonstration here, I think, asks us to consider, are you realistic about your weaknesses? And do you speak them out? Actually name them, both to God and then also to trusted other people and friends around you. That is the practice of vulnerability. Vulnerability is a spiritual practice because when we're vulnerable, it opens us up to places of God's work in our lives and in the world. It opens us up to being in those places where we say, God, your power and our confidence and trust in you is our only hope. And that's what Paul's saying here to the Galatians saying, you know, I came and I was totally weak 
I actually physically couldn't even muster the strength to do what God asked me to do. But in that place of weakness, God actually birthed something, a vibrant, uh, dynamic Christian community that he's now seeing and participating in and writing back to, and it's a beautiful situation. But Paul writes back to them with a very tender but very pointed illustration. Let's keep going in verse 17. He says, so these false teachers, they're eager to win your favor, but their intentions are not good. They're trying to shut you off from me so that you'll pay attention to only them. If someone's eager to do good things for you, that's okay, but let them do it all the time, not just when I'm with you. They're putting on a show. Oh, dear children, I feel as if I'm going through labor pains again. And they will continue until Christ is fully developed in your lives. I wish I was with you right now so I could change my tone. But at this distance, I don't even know how else to help you. Paul is downright maternal in his feelings toward this group of Christ followers. And the reason he's concerned is these false teachers have gotten in there and they're teaching all of the time about how observing certain days, eating only certain foods, being circumcised is the mark of being special in God's sight. And Paul says, these people are pointing you to something all right, but they're pointing you in a direction that is not helpful. They're violating a core principle of friendship. Because good friends always point you in the right direction. See, the false teachers... Paul says they want you to actually attach yourself to them. They want you to focus on them and listen to everything they have to say and do everything exactly as they want to do it. And Paul says, mm, you know what? I actually, though I'm telling you to imitate me, what I'm really saying is you need to focus and fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't get always as fixated on the messenger. It's not a blind loyalty to a brand or a leader or in our day and time, denomination or pastor, Paul is saying, ultimately, following another person needs to lead you deeper into a relationship with Jesus. And so that's where we need to be headed. And that's the direction that Paul wants to point them in. In Galatia, these false teachers were creating an unhealthy dependency on themselves as the sources of truth. And for the rest of the story then, the chapter rather, Paul's going to tell them a story. And he sets this story up as a contrasting way of relating to God. It's a, a contrast between two women, two mountains, and two covenants. And Paul's been talking about the promises that God made. The promises God made to Abraham, that God would bless the nations and invite people from every tribe, every nation, every corner of the globe to be part of God's family. And yet rival teachers are saying, mm, in order to be part of God's family, you have to practice the laws that God gave to Moses at Mount Sinai. And when the non-Jewish believers started asking questions about that, false teachers started saying, oh, well, this is how they do it in Jerusalem. So, I mean, if you want to appeal to authority, then let's talk about Jerusalem. This is just how it goes there. And all of those people are Jewish, so let's just stick with the plan. And we have some evidence even that will come up in Galatians chapter 5 that the false teachers were so strident that they were even using physical violence to try and bring people into line with their way of thinking or to throw people out 
of the gathered community when they weren't in line with their way of thinking. And so Paul tells them a little story from their own history that would help them see the dangers of following the pathway of law-based observances as the way to favor with God. So in verse 21, Paul says, oh, uh, let me tell you a story. You want to live under the law, do you? Hmm, let's just look at what the law actually says. The scriptures say Abraham had two sons, one from his slave wife and one from the freeborn wife. The son of the slave wife was born in a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. The son of the freeborn wife was born as God's own fulfillment of his promise. And these two women serve as an illustration of God's two covenants. The first woman, Hagar, represents Mount Sinai, where people received the law, the law of Moses that enslaved them. And now Jerusalem is just like Mount Sinai in Arabia, because she and her children live in slavery to the law. But the other woman, Sarah, represents the heavenly Jerusalem. She's the free woman. She's our mother. As Isaiah said, rejoice, O childless woman. You've never given birth. Break into joyful shout. You've never been in labor. The desolate woman now has more children than the woman who lives with her husband. And you, dear brothers and sisters, are children of the promise, just like Isaac. But you're now being persecuted by those who want you to keep the law, just as Ishmael the child born by human effort persecuted Isaac, the child born by the power of the Spirit. But what do the scriptures say about that? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman will not share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. So, dear brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman. We are children of the free woman. You might think, well, that's a little bit of a convoluted history lesson, Paul. But what Paul is saying here, and the reason that he tells Israel's story in this way, isn't just to talk about how his original hearers didn't need to become Jewish in order to become Christians. Paul says it actually right in verse 24. He says this is actually about two different ways of relating to God. Two different, these two children, the story of these two children is about two ways of being in relationship with God. And these are still two ways that are on the table and will still wrestle for mental and emotional and spiritual space in your heart and soul most days. So Paul is saying that anyone who relies on keeping the rules as a way of proving how much they love God, has failed to realize the truth of the gospel. And I don't know about you, but I find this tension in my own life. Sometimes it's just a little bit easier to use the metric of how much activity have I done to assess how much I love Jesus or how much Jesus loves me. So for example, when I was growing up, I would think about regularly, okay, how many times did I read my Bible and pray this week? Oh, I missed a few days. Okay, well, that means I'm further away from Jesus than I should be. I do, I'll, do, I'll do more. I'd pray and say, God, I'll do more. I'll do better next week. I'll try harder next week. And that aspiration and intention in and of itself is, is noble and healthy. But 
What I notice myself slipping into sometimes is using activity or actions or tying my actions or inactions into the lens of God's love for me in Christ. So if I do more Jesus stuff, that must mean Jesus loves me more or I love Jesus more. And if I do less, that must mean conversely that Jesus loves me less. And when you do that, you're starting to slip into an Ishmael Hagar story of slavery to rules and activity as the basis for your belovedness. And Paul says, if you keep walking that journey out to its very end, it does not end in a helpful and healthy place. Because the further you walk down that pathway, the more slavish it feels. And the more slavish action and self-regret and loathing you begin to heap on yourself, and eventually you just say to yourself, you know what, forget it. I'll never get there, I can never measure up. And ultimately, Paul and the writers of the New Testament let us know that if you want to walk down that pathway, Paul says you cannot share an inheritance with those who are living and walking in the freedom that Christ offers. And so the real summative moment in Paul's story comes in Galatians 5 verse 1. This is one of those places where it's a very unfortunate chapter break because out of 31, he just keeps going and, and into chapter 5 verse 1, he says, So Christ has truly set us free. Christ has unstuck us from this place of slavishness. And now, make sure that you stay free and do not get tied up again in slavery to the law. Because good friends do not let good friends stay stuck. And I don't know about you, or what your journey is. You may have been a, a part of a Christian tradition for decades, and you may have consciously or unconsciously absorbed the message that the way to deepen your Christian life and get close to Jesus is by doing stuff. And that is partially true. Just like any good friendship or human relationship, you can't get closer or deeper unless you do stuff together. But the point of a friendship isn't actually, if you think about it from a human perspective, the stuff that you do, is it? It's the relationship that gets built when you're doing the stuff together. The point of the friendship is that you're together. The activities are the vehicle by which you deepen that relationship and life together. But if you made it all about the activities instead of the person you're doing them with, that would not lead to a healthy friendship. But see, when we translate that into our thinking about our spiritual lives, some of us have slipped into places where the things that we do for God become more important than the level of relationship we're developing with God. The activities have replaced or supplanted the heart and the genuine desire for a deeper friendship with God. 
And so this is the shadow side of spiritual practices. And you'll hear us talk regularly about spiritual practices here at Jericho. And spiritual practices are activities that help us create soil in the right conditions in our heart, either collectively, like gathered worship, or individually for God to do the work that God wants to do. But we never make them in to the actual point or the thing that we are depending on to grow us. They are always, always, always a means, never an end in and of themselves. One of my mentors from a distance has been Dallas Willard. He's a philosophy or was a philosophy professor at USC and a proponent uh, of uh, spiritual practices. And Willard would often say that grace is not opposed to effort. So we need to put in effort to grow in our life with God. But grace is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. And that's Paul's argument here. If you're a person who's been set free and you're developing a deep and vibrant relationship with God because you've experienced God's mercy, do not get tied up or caught up again under the yoke of slavery that is just an activity-based relating to Jesus. You need to live like a person who's been set free and invite others into the life of freedom. The worship team is going to come and we're going to respond with one song this morning. And as we do that, I want you to think, are there areas of your life, is there one or maybe more areas of your life where for whatever reason you think, oh man, in this area I need to earn God's favor. Or maybe there's a part of you that feels bound up or trapped by legalism or by going through the motions in some way. And if that's you, then I would encourage you, don't sing the song. Just because the words are up on the screen doesn't mean you need to do that. We want to create an environment where you can spend time talking to God and saying, God, I need you to deal with this in my life. I feel stuck. I feel trapped. Invite God to speak freedom into those places where shame or sin or slavery have taken hidden roots. And conversely, the scripture reminds us that those who have been set free are free indeed. We can always slip backward into acting and thinking like slaves again, but our fundamental status as persons who are free is established and is sustained and maintained. Our prayer team is going to make their way to the back, and today that's Wally and Sylvia and Mike and Miriam, and they'll have name tags on. And these are some of our staff and some of our elders and some people here who are gifted in this way, and they would love to pray with you. Maybe you've come this morning with a burden. Uh, maybe it's something that's heavy on your heart, something going on in your life, and you'd like somebody to pray with you. I'd encourage you to make your way to the back there, and we would love to pray with you.